Two weeks ago, we examined the first half of Romans 14, a chapter that has massive implications for the health, the vitality, the ministry of First Baptist Nixa. The theme of this entire chapter is preserving unity in the church despite disagreements over what Paul calls in verse 1, opinions. These opinions are matters of conscience. They are issues of Christian freedom. They are matters about which the Bible, if it be understood from a new covenant perspective, is silent. Issues that are not addressed in scripture either by explicit command or by necessary inference. For the church at Rome comprised as it was of both Jews and Gentiles, these issues concern the eating of non-kosher meat, the observance of the weekly Sabbath and other Jewish holy days, and the drinking of wine. For our church in our context, it could be a question of whether Christians should drink alcohol or get tattoos or read literature with magical fantasy elements in it, or celebrate certain holidays with certain uh, traditions from supposedly pagan origins, or listen to secular music, or watch certain movies, or send your kids to public school rather than homeschool or Christian school, or any number of issues that fall in the category of opinion and matters of conscience. Our church and any church must learn how to disagree over questions of Christian freedom without dividing and without despising one another. It is imperative that we possess the maturity and the discernment to know which matters are essential and therefore worth contending for and which matters are non-essential and over which we must agree to disagree in love and mutual respect. And this is hard. It's hard because that line between essential and non-essential is often hazy and different people draw it in different places. But while it is hard, it is necessary. It is imperative. The unity of the church and the ministry of the gospel is at stake. So today we continue by examining the second half of Romans 14. And what we find is that while verses 1 through 12 focus mainly upon the attitude that we must have toward one another, verses 13 to 23 focus upon the actions that we must take towards one another. The main point of the first half of Romans 14 was found in verse 1 where Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. That welcome that Paul commands is more than toleration. It's more than dividing into factions. It is a reciprocal attitude of affection and spirit-wrought fellowship. For instance, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Or chapter 15 and verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you 
for the glory of God. This is Paul's vision for the church, not only for the church at Rome, but for the church at Nixa. It is a church in which those who do, do not despise those who don't. And there's such holier than thou legalists. And those who don't, do not judge those who do. They're so ungodly, they just don't care about holiness. Rather, each one abides by the dictates of their own conscience. Chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. They live their lives in light of the coming judgment before the judgment seat of Christ. Verses 10 through 12. And they welcome all whom God welcomes on the basis by which God welcomes them. Namely, repentance and faith in Christ alone. In the second half of Romans 14, Paul then turns from the attitude to the action required for such unity to exist. And verse 13 provides the fulcrum of transition. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There's the attitude. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. There's the action. The unity of the church depends not only on an attitude of grace in non-essential matters, but also upon an action of love, namely willingness to forego my freedom in Christ in order not to cause the weaker brother whom I love and for whom Christ died to stumble and to fall. The second half of Romans 14 is notoriously difficult to outline because Paul doesn't address this issue in a linear fashion. Rather, he approaches it in something of a circular or even a chiastic structure that goes like A, B, C, and then he returns and he goes C, B, A, right? He just restates in reverse order what he has already said. So this morning, I'm not going to be working consecutively through verses 13 to 23, Rather, we're going to look at the passage as a whole, and I'm going to draw draw out from it five principles of Christian freedom, followed by three principles of Christian love, all of which are essential to the preservation of unity in the church. Principle number one, all things are objectively clean. Paul establishes this principle that all things are objectively clean. And he makes this point rather emphatically twice. In verse 14 and in verse 20. Verse 14 he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. He repeats it again in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean. Now you will note in your bulletins that I put uh, the word things in square, in scare quotes, uh, though of course Paul doesn't. This is in order to indicate that when Paul says all things are clean and that nothing is unclean in itself, what he means is that all things are clean. Not all words or thoughts or deeds. All 
things as things are clean in themselves. And this is an important qualification so that we don't get the idea that when Christ died and rose again, thus fulfilling and setting aside the old covenant law and inaugurating the new covenant of grace, that suddenly anything goes in the Christian life, that there are no more rules, no more standards, no more commands, no more moral limits. That is most emphatically not true, and that is emphatically not what Paul is saying. John Murray, as usual, is quite helpful here. He writes, quote, The conviction underlying abstinence from certain foods and drinks was that these things were intrinsically evil and that the use of them for these purposes was defiling and contrary to the morals which should govern the Christian. The apostle sets forth the biblical principle that nothing is unclean in itself. That, as he says elsewhere, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it be received with thanksgiving. That's 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. He goes on to say this principle is the refutation of all prohibitionism which lays the responsibility for wrong at the door of things rather than at the door of man's heart. The basic evil of this ethic is that it makes God the creator of these things responsible for the evil and it involves both blasphemy and the attempt to alleviate human responsibility for wrong. Paul is echoing here Jesus' teaching from Mark chapter 7 when the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled because Jesus' disciples did not go through the process of ritual washing prior to eating. In response, Jesus condemned these Pharisees and scribes for missing the point of the law and for making righteousness an external work rather than a matter of internal character. Mark 7, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark adds this little editorial comment. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Jesus is saying that a pig is not evil. It's not unclean, though it wallows in the filth. A pig acts only according to its created nature. No pig ever dreamt of rebelling against its creator. No pig ever dared to attempt to become its own god. Wine is not evil. 
It is not unclean, though it be un, though it be touched by pagan hands or used for pagan purposes or poured out as a libation before a pagan idol. In all of those circumstances, the wine remains only wine. No, Jesus placed his finger upon the source of all evil. It is not God and his good creation. It is man and his wicked heart. The heart of man, your heart, my heart, apart from the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, is a ceaseless fountain of depravity. It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, says Jeremiah 17, 9. And the old covenant law was given in order to demonstrate that no matter how fastidious you are about cleansing the body, you can't cleanse the heart. No matter how hard you wash the outside of the cup, the inside remains dirty. You need a savior. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be born again. Thus Jesus came and he declared all foods clean. That is, he declared that the time for the object lessons of the old covenant law about ritual purity were over. Righteousness is not to be found in a ritual. Righteousness is to be found in a person, namely in Jesus himself. So back to Romans 14 and the issues in the church at Rome. Paul is emphatic. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He tells the church at Rome, you can eat pork. You can eat shrimp. You can even eat a vulture if you so wish, though I wouldn't recommend it. You can eat meat that has been prepared by pagan hands. You can eat meat that was sacrificed to a pagan idol. That meat, that thing, has not become defiled and is not evil. You can drink wine or beer or anything else if you so wish. Even though others may drink it to excess and so defile themselves in debauchery and drunkenness, yet wine remains but a thing. It is not evil. It is not defiled. You can work on Saturday. You can work on Sunday. For one who is holy through faith in Christ, all days are holy. Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, let me take just a moment here and say, I do believe that the principle of the fourth commandment, right, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, is carried over into the new covenant, but it must be received in that new covenant through faith in Christ. I still believe that you should set aside one day in seven to rest from your ordinary labors and to gather with the people of God for worship. And I think there is a reason why the early church began meeting on a day, namely Sunday, that they termed the Lord's Day. But it was not because Sunday is now somehow holier than Saturday or Thursday or Monday. A day is a day. And they did not set aside Sunday as the Lord's day out of some fear of being excommunicated should they walk too far or carry too many sticks or in some other way perform a work. It was because they knew we are not God. 
We are created beings who need rest. We need spiritual fellowship. We need to feed our souls upon the word of God. And Sunday seemed a fitting day on which to do it. As it was on the first day of the week that Christ rose from the grave, thereby inaugurating the new creation, just as the last day of the week had looked back upon the original creation. So they took the moral principle of the fourth commandment and they applied it in a new covenant context permeated through by new covenant grace. But that's a topic for a different time. So the first principle that Paul lays down in this second half of Romans 14 is that all things are objectively clean in themselves. As you heard John Murray say earlier in that quote, This is the same thing Paul taught in 1 Timothy 4, where he condemns the teaching of those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. A strong biblical doctrine of God Namely, that he is good and gracious. And a strong biblical doctrine of creation, namely that God has made this world for our enjoyment in order that we should give thanks and glory to him. And a strong biblical doctrine of scripture, namely that the word of God is sufficient to regulate our actions and to show us how we may live in a way that pleases God, guards us from this kind of legalism, this kind of asceticism. You don't need extra biblical rules to keep you holy. If you believe and know the truth, says Paul, you can eat, drink, and otherwise enjoy God's good creation without guilt or fear or shame so long as it does not violate the word of God. If you can give thanks to God for it and enjoy it to his glory, it is no sin. Think of it this way, that which has no soul, no power of moral reasoning can ever act immorally. It cannot become evil or defiled or unclean in itself. People are unclean. Things are not. What people do with things can be unclean and defiling. What people do with food, wine, their bodies, their minds, their mouths, their tongues can be unclean. Food is not unclean, yet gluttony is a sin. Wine is not unclean, yet drunkenness is sin. A mouth is not unclean, yet gossip is sin. The issue in all of these matters, our bodies are not unclean, yet sexual immorality is sin. In all of these matters, the issue is that the problem is not with the material substance, the food, the wine, the mouth, the body. The problem is with the heart of man and whether or not it will enjoy God's good creation in accordance with God's holy design. So that's the underlying principle. Principle number one, no thing is unclean in itself. All things are objectively clean. But not everyone has the faith to believe that. 
Whatever the reason, maybe it's a background in legalism or a a background in paganism or a background in which the good things of God were abused, such as in alcoholism. Some people are either not convinced by what I just said or their conscience is not caught up yet with their knowledge. Whatever the cause, the first principle is not sufficient. All things are objectively clean. That's not sufficient to guide this church. We need a second qualifying principle, which is that not all things are subjectively clean. All things are objectively clean. Not all things are subjectively clean. All things are clean in themselves, but not all things are clean to you. This is Paul's point in the second half of verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Same principle is expounded in verse 22. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the second fundamental principle underlying Paul's exhortation in this passage is this. While all things are objectively clean, not all things are subjectively clean. Though all things are clean in themselves, if a person does not believe that it is clean, then that clean thing becomes for that weak brother something that is unclean. Now, what does Paul mean? How, how can this be? Well, we don't have to guess because Paul actually spells out a situation in which these two principles come into conflict with each other. And it occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 over the issue of food sacrificed to idols. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Paul establishes the first principle. He says, food sacrificed to idols is clean because idols are nothing. They are no gods. They are stone or metal or wood. But food sacrificed to idols, Paul says, is not clean for everyone, particularly for those who have come out of paganism in which they had worshipped these idols as though they were gods. Paul says in doing that, they had actually been worshipping demons. So then Paul continues with the second principle. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge that idols are no thing. They are no gods. And therefore, food sacrificed to idols is not unclean in itself. Not everyone has this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? The sense there is, will he not be tempted if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
So for the brother who comes out of paganism, who has worshiped idols as though they were gods, to eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol is a terrible confusion of allegiances in his mind. It's an unholy mixing of his past with his present. It violates his conscience, which has determined to have nothing more to do with idols. Therefore, if he were to eat food sacrificed to idols, it would not be an act of faith, an act of freedom. It would not be an act of thanksgiving to God, done to the glory of God. It would be too close to his idolatrous past for comfort, and it would be done for some reason other than thanks, thank, faith and thanksgiving. For instance, perhaps fear of being thought weak by his stronger brother who can eat. Or perhaps some indwelling temptation that still resides within him that is drawn to the allure of the pagan environment. The point is, if that weak brother partakes, he is destroyed by guilt and shame. And the stronger brother would bear the guilt. Why? Because the stronger brother violated the law of love and made his stomach to be his God. Was he free? Was the stronger brother free to eat food sacrificed to idols? Sure. Idols are nothing. All things are clean. But he is not free to not love his brother. Do you catch that? He chose food over his brother's conscience. And that was sin. So the first principle is that all things are objectively clean in themselves. The second is that not all, not all things are subjectively clean to ourselves, but are governed by the rule of faith. If you can eat meat or drink alcohol or get a tattoo or read Harry Potter or put up a Christmas tree, etc., 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 if you can do those things in faith, believing it to be no violation of the word of God and that it can be received with thanksgiving to the glory of God then you are free to do so. But if you doubt, if you are unsure about where something stands in relation to the word of God, if your conscience is still shaped by past associations with ungodliness, then you are not free to eat meat or do any of those other things in question. If you do, your eating will not be in faith but in fear, primarily the fear of man. And your eating, Paul says in verse 23, will be sin. Now, the third and fourth principles I've already touched on because they're intimately connected with the first two, but I decided to pull them out and deal with them briefly but separately so that we would not miss the point of Paul's exhortation. So the third principle is a qualification of the first. You are free. To eat, drink, regard all days alike, etc. But you are not free to destroy your brother. You are not free to not love. The command to love triumphs over any claim to freedom. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So suppose you have a friend who is raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, but he has been converted of late to faith in Jesus as Messiah. 
All right, he's still working out the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's still figuring out what to do with all of those food laws and all of the traditions in which he was raised. He's still not convinced in his heart that the kosher food laws established in the book of Leviticus no longer bind the Christian. It may be a long time before this Jewish friend can eat like a Gentile. Indeed, he may never have that freedom in his own conscience. So the question is, what does love do? Number one, love still invites him over for dinner, but it doesn't relegate him over into some corner of the church as that guy with the weird beliefs. It invites him over, but not on a Sabbath day or a Jewish holy day. Love does not grill pork chops or ham steaks or serve crab cakes when he comes. Love asks him in advance if he has any dietary restrictions that he would like you to observe. And then love actually observes them even though no one's watching and he won't know any better. Love sets aside your freedom to eat anything and your freedom to cook it however you want. Love models Christian freedom, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a moment, but not in a way that tramples all over his convictions and his conscience. Love does not pressure the weaker brother to do anything that his conscience is not free to do. And love does not condemn a brother for not exercising, exercising and enjoying his freedom in Christ. Love, on the contrary, welcomes him as he is. So Paul makes the same point beginning in verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Just look at what Paul says happens if you exercise your freedom at the expense of another brother's conscience. He says two things happen. Number one, you destroy your brother for whom Christ died. You trample upon the cross of Christ. This is strong language. Paul usually uses the word destroy to refer to ultimate spiritual ruin. It's a serious thing to flaunt your freedom in such a way that entices your weaker brother to violate his own conscience. The conscience is a sacred, precious thing. To violate it, to grieve it, and ultimately to sear it and harden it means that that brother will no longer be able to feel guilt or remorse or shame. Such people, 1 Timothy 1.9, end up making shipwreck of their faith. Now, don't press Paul's language beyond all theological bounds here. He's not suggesting that a true believer can be ultimately destroyed. After all, he just said up in verse 4 that God would uphold his own and make them stand. But the fact of the matter is, is that every congregation is to some extent a mixed body, isn't it? There are in this church this morning, undoubtedly, Christians and counterfeit Christians 
and almost Christians and not yet Christians. The point is, do not play fast and loose with another person's conscience. Never entice them to violate their own convictions because you never know whom you might be destroying. Second thing you destroy is the work of God, verse 20. Paul may be reiterating the point made in verse 15 about destroying the weaker brother, or his focus may now be upon the entire Christian community, the church as a whole, as the work of God. Your trampling upon your brother's conscience may end up destroying the whole church. The point is that flaunting your freedom rather than walking in love and per- and. and not pursuing that which makes for peace and mutual upbuilding actually has the effect of tearing down what Christ died to build up. It is a serious thing to exalt your liberty over the unity of the church. Likewise, the fourth principle corresponds to the second. All things are clean, but not all things are clean to all people but only to those whose faith has formed their conscience so as to regard it as clean. In other words, our freedom in Christ is not an absolute freedom. You are not absolutely free to destroy your brother. You are not free to destroy your own conscience. Your freedom to eat or drink or not observe the Sabbath or any other matter of conscience or Christian freedom goes only so far as your faith and your conscience goes. Look up at verses five and six. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So if your own conscience is not fully convinced, then you're not free in that particular matter. If you cannot eat, drink, watch, listen, play, fill in the blank with a matter of conscience, if you cannot do that thing to the glory of God, giving thanks to him for it, then you are not free in that matter. You are not free to destroy your own conscience. Verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul says the one who has a clear conscience is blessed. But the one who violates his conscience, that is by eating, drinking, watching, listening, playing, fill in the blank in spite of doubts is cursed, condemned by God. Why? Why would God condemn someone for eating or drinking something that is itself clean? Because faith is the final rule. It is only clean to the one who believes it is clean. And therefore to the one who can receive it and enjoy it in faith with thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's why whatever is not from faith is sin. Because anything that is not done to the glory of God is sin. Why? Because it's done for some other reason, for some other motivation, namely fear or a desire for self-autonomy. Fifth, the kingdom of God is the goal of our eating, our drinking, 
or are abstaining. It's the chief end of the Christian life. Not eating, not drinking, or whatever matter of conscience we're dealing with. Those things are not the goal. This is the theological core that holds the entire passage together. Look at verses 16 to 19. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So why should you not allow what you regard as good and to be your freedom and your right, why should you not allow that to be regarded as evil? Why should you pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, even if it means not enjoying your freedom? Because the kingdom of God is at stake. For you, it's at stake for your weaker brother. It's at stake for those unbelievers who sit back and watch Christians squabble and divide over stupid, non-essential matters. And the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How can you tell who's in the kingdom of God? How can you tell who exists within that saving realm of God's reign in Christ and therefore will experience the eternal everlasting benefits of that kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth? What sets them apart? It is not their eating or drinking. Neither is it their abstaining. You cannot tell who is a Christian, I mean a real one, by the standard of whose conscience is free to eat and drink and whose is not. Lots of unbelievers eat and drink. Lots of unbelievers abstain from eating and drinking. But no unbeliever has righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whether or not they eat or drink. None. Unbelievers are either licentious or they're legalistic. They're all, they're, they are always squabbling and biting at one another and they have no real or lasting joy, only the fleeting pleasures of sin if they're licentious or the shallow, smug satisfaction thinking they're more righteous than other people if they're legalistic. Either way, it's not righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But those who have those attributes, righteousness expressed in love, peace and unity with brothers, even those with whom I disagree, and an indefatigable joy in the Holy Spirit, these, Paul says in verse 18, are acceptable to God and approved by men. Why? Because these and these alone are the sons of the kingdom. So these are the five principles of Christian freedom that Paul sets forth. And from them flow three practices of love, which will preserve the unity of this church in spite of all of our differences. As we grow together into conformity, into the image of Christ, that is, as we grow in our righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Three practices of love. Number one, to the strong, don't flaunt your freedom. Rather, walk in love. The faith and the freedom that you have, keep between yourself and God. Verse 22. Don't advertise it before those you know or even those you suspect have different convictions than you. 
And never, ever, 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 ever pressure someone to violate their convictions, to trample upon their conscience. In those situations in which convictions and conscience may come into conflict, you have the responsibility to defer to the weaker brother. You have the responsibility before God to lay aside your freedom and to walk in love. To the weak, practice number two, don't remain weak, but grow strong in faith. Though Paul's exhortations in this passage have been addressed to the strong, who, I will say, bear the primary responsibility in this matter. Why? Because it's possible for the strong to abstain without violating their conscience. It is impossible for the weak to partake without violating their conscience. So you, the strong, you're primarily responsible for maintaining the unity of this church. Yet there is, in this passage, an implied exhortation to the weak not to remain weak. Where? Well, the very fact that Paul calls them weak is not good to be weak. It's better to be strong. And by the fact that Paul groups himself with the strong in verse 1. Shows that he wishes for the weak, even though they ought to be welcomed, to become strong. John Stott said, alongside this explicit instruction not to violate our conscience, there is an implicit requirement to educate it. So subject your conscience to the all-sufficient rule of Scripture in order that it may be reformed according to the standards of the Word of God and not to the standards and traditions of men. Test your conscience by the Scriptures. And be, please, be mature and discerning enough to recognize which issues are essential and which are not. Which are biblical and which are not. And don't make matters of conscience a test of your fellowship. Practice number three. This is addressed to both the weak and the strong. Do not judge by non-essentials. Rather, judge by God's standards. Do not judge one's holiness or one's inheritance in the kingdom of God by external non-essentials such as eating or drinking. Where do you find the true church? Where do you find the kingdom of God? Where do you find the sons of the kingdom and the heirs of Christ? It is wherever you find righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let that be the standard of fellowship here at First Baptist Nixa, not eating or drinking or any other matter of conscience or Christian freedom. Let righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit be the focus and the aim of all of our discipleship and the bond of our fellowship.